Good morning. Christ is risen. First of all, I have to say how grateful I am and thankful I am for this sanctuary community to all of you who called or texted or even uh, visited while I was in the hospital a couple of weeks ago. Thank you so much for your prayers. My diagnosis was rhabdomyolysis, and they tell you that you get it from working out too hard, (laughs) which is not something I ever thought I'd be accused of. But here we are. So again, thank you for your prayers. They certainly carried me along. Bishop Ed told me earlier this week to preach them happy here at the beginning of Lent. So I told him, no problem. I'm talking about the devil, fasting, and sin. So plenty to be happy about today. See? (laughs) We love our babies. Amen. Well, today is the first Sunday of Lent, these traditional 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, where we consider how we are creatures. We consider that we are created beings, that we are dust, we are mere mortals, and our need for repentance, our need for forgiveness. On Ash Wednesday, we told you to remember that you are dust. But the good news is, you are dust that is loved by God. Lent is this time where we are giving up things, we're setting aside things, even good things in our lives, and we direct those longings, those hunger pains, back toward God. That's the point of our fasting. We are trying to say to God that as much as I love that thing, I really want to love you more. And so we give up things like sweets and speeding, or listening to music in the car, which makes you so painfully aware of how much alone time you have and how much silence is really a part of our lives. The point, of course, is that we're not trying to earn anything from God. We're not trying to get something from God in return for our fasting. We can't manipulate God in those ways. But what we're trying to say, we're trying to make room for God in our lives, as we've so often said here at Sanctuary. The word Lent comes from this Latin word for spring, and it's where we get this idea of spring cleaning, this work of decluttering our lives and taking time to consider what is excess in our spaces. And it's all for the purpose of preparing our lives for something new that God wants to do in us. We prepare for spring because we're getting ready for summer and for the new life that's going to be birthed into the world. We fast, we declutter our lives to make room for God to do something new in each one of us individually. But as much as Lent is about making room for God, I want to suggest to us today that our Lenting, our fasting, our making room for God is really only possible because God has already made room for us. 
In Matthew's gospel, we were just told that Jesus is led out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, if you're anything like me, you've probably seen these movies that depict the devil with the big horns and the bad mustache and probably a cigarette and for some strange reason, leather clothing. Um, Like when Carmen says, Satan bites the dust. And this guy shows up. Nobody's wondering, well, where's Satan in this picture? You can take that down now. (laughs) It's pretty obvious. So sometimes we get this idea that Jesus is in the wilderness, and this is the kind of goofy-looking fellow that comes up next to him to try and tempt him. You don't have to be Jesus to realize that's the devil and his temptations should be resisted. That's not how scripture talks about the devil. I told you we were going to talk about the devil probably more than we have ever talked about the devil at sanctuary today. This is not how the scriptures talk about the devil. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the devil masquerades as an angel of light. It's a far cry from a cowboy hat and a mustache. This is something I think of the trick that the devil tries to play on us. That it doesn't make sense for an angel of light to try and go around to get you to disbelieve in God. Those kinds of things are too obvious. Wouldn't make sense for an angel of light to try and convince us to not believe in God. This isn't the trick of the devil. The real trick that the devil plays on us is to get to believe in God in ways that are unfaithful. This is the trick of the devil. Or to say it another way, the trick is to believe in the promises of God that God never really promised to us in the first place. When we fall for this trick, which we so often do, it ends up creating this cycle of our own frustration our own anger at God for not doing what God never said he was going to do for us in the first place. Meanwhile, God is waiting on us to act and to do what we're never going to do because we're waiting on God to do what he's never going to do. We haven't heard God rightly, so we can't act rightly. Here's what I mean. So many of us have been told that the most important thing for Christians to do is to believe and to believe intensely. So we end up believing strongly, but too often we are believing in misunderstandings of who God actually is. We declare God is our provider, but we rely on our own sense of what we need. We declare that God is our healer, And then we pretend like we have any idea what health actually looks like for us. We trust God as both our deliverer and our protector, but then we expect God's deliverance and his protection to come on our own terms and in our own time. All this really does for us is lead from suffering to suffering, from frustration to frustration and disappointment to disappointment, not because God is unfaithful. I want us to hear that today. It's not because God is unfaithful. It's because our expectations of God are built on our own foundations instead of God's. What's worse is that oftentimes we take our misunderstandings about God and we try to push them 
onto others, as well-meaning as we may be. When we do that, we actually offer them the opposite of the devil's temptation to Jesus. We end up taking the bread that God means for our good and for our nourishment, and we actually turn it into stones that we offer our neighbor. We offer them a burden that God never intended to place on them, simply because we've misunderstood what it is that God has promised us. When you end up in the hospital, this becomes painfully obvious. A well-meaning person a couple days into my little stint at St. John's texted me and said, you know, maybe this was just God's way of getting you to rest for a little while. Is it well-meaning? Of course. But we're really offering stones instead of bread. What am I to make in a hospital bed of a God who would inflict me with rhabdomyolysis just so I could rest for a little while. It seems to me there are other ways of getting my attention that don't include a hospital bill. Or maybe uh, you've seen this image before. This is all according to God's plan. And here's God making plans. Number one, make the universe. Number two, give Steve a tumor. And now what do I do? This is not the God that we see revealed in Jesus Christ. Of course, all of us at some point have said something like this at precisely the wrong time. And we probably didn't mean anything like this. Of course, when we say that it's part of God's plan, we don't think that God's really standing there with a whiteboard thinking, now what do I do? I've given them the tumor. This is not what we mean when we say these kinds of things. But this is the trick that the devil plays on us. Not to doubt, not to question, not to disbelieve entirely, but to believe passionately, intensely, in promises that God never made to us in the first place. On some level, this should give us a healthy suspicion of ourselves and who we believe God is. And instead, we ought to rely on the God who is revealed to us in Jesus Christ more than the God of our own understanding. We can't just trust our experiences with God. We have to depend on Jesus's experiences with the Father. The downside is that the way of Jesus often looks like foolishness to us. It looks like the upside down, subversive gospel the wisdom of the gospel that doesn't make any sense to us. It's the things like loving our enemies, things like doing good to those who hate us. And I think this is why the season of Lent is so important for us. Because the shock of Good Friday and the shock of Resurrection Sunday are going to come as they always do. And it's going to hit us the way that it always does. And the things that Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday say more loudly and more clearly than any other moment is that God's strength is in God's weakness. That all of our power is found in God's powerlessness. This is something of what Paul means again in 2 Corinthians when he says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so the best way, the only way to prepare us for the shock of that moment those are not easy things to hear, that our strength is made perfect in weakness, that the way 
to life is through death. We have to have this season of Lent to help us make sense of this kind of message, to get our feet planted underneath us, to brace us for the shock of what's to come. For many of us, we do this by way of fasting. Like Christians have been doing since the beginning, most of us have prepared in this season of Lent by giving up or giving away or taking on certain things that we feel that God is pressing on us to do. But as our friend Chris Green Green reminded me recently, this is kind of long, so bear with me. During Lent, we not only fast occasional meals, familiar luxuries and shallow entertainments. We're not doing this for self-improvement or our own health after all. Like Christians have been doing since the beginning, we fast from hasty words and needless chatter, from contemptuous and mistrustful thoughts, from angry and bitter feelings. We fast from unwarranted judgments about ourselves and about others. We give up our self-hate. We give up impatience with our children. We give up fear of strangers and hatred of our enemies. And we give away food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, clothes to the naked, shelter to the homeless. We visit the sick and the imprisoned. We bury the dead with honor. We offer instruction to the ignorant, counsel to the doubting, comfort to the sorrowful, reproof to the erring. We forgive those who wronged us and bear with those who trouble and annoy us. We pray for everyone and everything. To put all of this in another way, your fasting is not about you. Your fasting is about what God will do in you for your neighbor so that we can truly offer bread to one another instead of stones. Our text today tells us that Jesus went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. Now, this is significant for a number of reasons, but what I want us to hear today is that Jesus didn't merely fast to provide us an example or to prove to us that we ought to fast. Jesus fasts to make it possible for our fasting to actually work good in us. He fasted so that our fasts aren't merely religious or for self-improvement or for losing a few pounds before spring break. But that by making room in our lives for God, we can find that God in Jesus Christ is the one who has already made room for us. As 2 Peter says, Christ's divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness so that we can participate in his divine nature. God becomes human in Jesus. He takes on our flesh and blood. He steps into all that it is to be human. He experiences hunger and thirst and temptation, pain and loss and joy, all so that we can participate in his divine life. Here's what that looks like. When Jesus goes to John the Baptist to be baptized, Jesus doesn't need the baptism of John. He doesn't need to go down into the waters. But Jesus goes into the waters to sanctify them for us so that when we are going down into the waters, we can participate 
in his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Like Adam, Jesus then is sent from paradise out into the wilderness. But Jesus is the one who can resist temptation. And so we can be carried along by him in overcoming our own temptations. The Israelites, we know, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, consistently falling into this trap of unfaithfulness. So what does Jesus do? He goes into the wilderness to show us what faithfulness actually looks like and makes room for us there so that we can go into the wilderness and be found faithful. Jesus doesn't need to die, but he submits himself to death. As the text tells us, even death on a cross. So that even in death, we don't have to fear and we can trust in the goodness of God because Jesus' death is the death that puts death itself to death. This is what it is for God to make room for us, to redeem spaces of unfaithfulness in our lives so that we can experience his salvation. This is kind of a silly story, but it brings this home for me. And it's going to tell you quite a bit about me that I don't know that I want you to know, but you're about to find out. I grew up one of those like country club kids playing golf since I could pick up a golf club. And my dad belonged to one country club for like most of my, most of my life. And then one summer, he switches country clubs. And I'm coming home from school for the summer. And he's like, hey, meet me at this new place. Now, if you've not spent much time in country clubs, <laughs> they're kind of their own little worlds. And so as a kid, this was my whole life. I wake up, I go to the country club, I hit balls on the driving range, I eat lunch, and then I go to the pool for a little bit, and then I go play nine holes with my dad. Like, my whole life was, like, all happening in these, like, few square miles. It's so hard, I know. I know. You want to hear a terrible? Okay, this is even worse. My dad didn't let me have a summer job. Because my job was to go to the golf course because I was going to be a good golfer so that I could get a scholarship to go to school and so on and so forth, right? I was that kid. Sorry. (laughs) But so one summer, we've grown up in this one country club, right? And he switches clubs to this place where we've never been, never spent any time, and just tells me, like, hey, go meet me over this place. I'll be there soon. So again, if you haven't spent much time on country clubs, people get very suspicious of people that they don't think really should be there. So when you're an 18-year-old kid strolling into this country club that you've never been in before, that's very private, you start to get a lot of suspicious looks. And I'm trying to convince people, like, no, 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 like, uh, I think we just started coming here. I I don't know what our member number is. Like, can you tell me where the locker room is? Having all these questions. And then my dad shows up, and everybody knows my dad. And suddenly, I'm bolstered with this feeling that I can belong here because he's the one who's the member. He's the one who's been here before and told people, oh, no, 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 be looking out for my son. So much of the world feels so strange to us because we forget the very fact that Jesus has already gone before us. 
that we step out of our own bubble, our own space of comfort, and we step into what God has for us, and it can feel so lonely. We can feel so alone that we forget that Jesus is the one who finds us in the wilderness. And he doesn't just find us there, but he is faithful there. And not for his own sake, but so that we can go into the wilderness and we can be the faithful people of God, even in the midst of temptation. I told you that was a terrible story. (laughs) But in this way, we don't just simply observe Jesus and our humanity, but we're actually called to obedience in in imitating the life of Jesus. And so we willingly submit ourselves to this hard but hopeful season like Lent. In our Old Testament story today, we're given this story of Adam and Eve and this text about how sin enters into the world. And this story hits on some of the things that Lent invites us to consider. It considers our our creatureliness, our sinfulness, but it's not about considering these things on their own terms just the fact that we're creatures, or just the fact that we are sinful. But it's about what happens to us, what happens to our creatureliness and to our sinfulness as those things are taken up in the life of Christ. Those things become transfigured and actually unlock something in us. So what happens then is our creatureliness becomes holy with God's own holiness. As 1 Peter says, be holy as I am holy. What does that look like? What does that mean? It only matters because Jesus has gone before us and has been holy. It's only possible in Christ because Christ has stepped into our creatureliness and redeemed it. He's the one who has made our creatureliness holy. This means the goal for us is not to be less and less human as we move toward holiness, but to move toward everything that God intended for it to mean to be human to enjoy God and to work with God for the good of the world. This is the point of our fasting. Rowan Williams says, to submit to God is to be most directly in touch with what is most real. To refuse submission is not to be free of an alien violence, some outside oppression, but to become an alien to yourself. So somehow, in refusing to submit to God, we are actually disconnecting with what it means to be a human being. To be obedient, to commit to something like fasting during Lent isn't really about reaching outside of yourself. Again, we don't earn anything from God in our fasting, but getting in touch with the parts of us that make us the most human in the light of Christ. And then we take those things and we offer them up to God. So often we resist hunger pains. We satiate every desire. We consume whatever we want so that we never have to suffer any need or feel any pain. But that's not the life of trust and dependence that we're called to. And that kind of living never really touches our neighbor except in violent, competitive ways when we're grasping and reaching for the same things as our neighbor. This means any sin in our life is not just about our failure to live a good, clean life. But the sin in our lives is really the refusal to let God's goodness come alive in us for the good of other people. 
Sin is whatever stifles or whatever frustrates the fullness of joy in our neighbor's life. To come back to Dr. Green's word, our fasting is not just about taking away, but it's about giving up and also what we give to other people. It's about giving up self-hate. It's about giving up impatience with our children, giving up our fear of strangers, giving up our hatred of our enemies and giving food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty. It's about forgiveness to those who have wronged us. And if our fasting is just for ourselves, we fall into this trap of just being religious or seeking self-improvement. And when that happens, the world can never be healed. I want to close with this passage from Isaiah. It's found in Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21. It says, Though the Lord may give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, Yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Sanctuary, what I want us to hear today is that fasting is not required of us. To be Christian, you don't need to fast. If you're new to the faith or if you're still recovering from the ways that fasting has been used as a manipulation to get something from God, there's no judgment in not fasting. Fasting really is a grace, though. It's space that is marked out for us in Christ that helps us to love God more and to love our families and our neighbors more. But one of the pitfalls of fasting is this feeling of being alone, that other people just don't understand what it is you're feeling and what it is that you're experiencing and the loss that you're feeling and the longings and the hunger pains or the thirst or whatever it is that you may be experiencing. So often our fasts are very personal to us, but they don't have to be lonely. So if you're here at the start of these 40 days and you're not sure if you really want to stick with it, If you're only a few days in and you're not sure how am I going to make it through these next six weeks, or if you're worried about fasting perfectly or not messing it up, I want you to hear the word of the Lord today, that your eyes shall see your teacher. And when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, your ears shall hear from a voice that comes behind you, this is the way, walk in it. I hope we walk well through this season of Lent together. Amen.